Welcome to the Tom Dupree Show. We have a special guest today, Congressman Andy Barr, our host, Tom Dupree, and we are powered by Dupree Financial Group. Okay, that's Muddy Waters, whose hometown of Rolling Fork, Mississippi, was blown away by a tornado in the last week. And uh, I know a little bit about Muddy being my mother was from Mississippi. And, uh, of course, he was, without Muddy Waters, there is no Rolling Stones. It's just that simple. So, uh, you know, I just want to, we'll play a couple of songs uh, in the next couple hours to commemorate Muddy. I'm going to read a psalm here, psalm number one. Blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor standeth in the way of sinners, nor sitteth in the seat of the scornful. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law doth he meditate day and night. So I'm so glad to have our congressman here. He's never been on this show before. It's been really hard <laughs> to try to um, rein him in. You know, he keeps giving me these excuses. And no, seriously, how many times have you been? I don't know. It's been it's been quite a bit. But every time he comes on, he does such a good job. He explains things. You know, and. Um, one of the big things, responsibilities that he now has as a as a congressman, as a member of this Congress, is the Financial Services Committee, which he's a member of and fairly high up on it. And I just want to kind of devote this hour to banking and financial things, since that's the business we're in. You know, our clients ask us about these kinds of things frequently. It can be to the outsider very daunting and seemingly mysterious and even scary uh, but banking when you start breaking it down and the whole financial world is not that complicated it's just that it has its own nomenclature it's got its own moving parts that not the average person doesn't understand. And sometimes it looks like some of the average bankers out there may not understand it. Although you've got a, you've done a much deeper dive into banking than I have with, especially with this recent failure of Silicon Valley bank and signature bank. And then some things going on internationally first Republic bank kind of got hit by a stray bullet in my opinion by their association in the Bay Area. But you've been in the middle of all of this, uh, Congressman. And so just give us 
kind of some updates here. Sure. Good morning, Tom and Elizabeth. Great to be with you and good to be home in Lexington. Busy week in Washington. We had our first uh, hearing in the Financial Services Committee this week with the bank regulators, uh, who I believe are largely to blame for uh, the failure of these institutions, um, of course, beyond the bank's management. Silicon Valley Bank was a mismanaged bank. Uh, Silicon Valley Bank and Silvergate before it, uh, and then uh, which was largely a cryptocurrency bank, a crypto custody bank. Um, so is that a real bank? or It's a real bank. And in fact, I would argue Silvergate was better managed because uh, they did not have a liquidity crisis. That bank w- was resolved uh, fairly easily because although uh, the the uh, deposit there was a deposit um, run just like there was with Silicon Valley Bank, Silvergate actually had quite a bit of liquidity and was ab- able to actually cover all of the withdrawals from uh, the right. uh, from the depositors. So let, explain just briefly how you think the uh, regulators failed. Well, let me just f- first start the, with the proximate cause for the okay. failure of Silicon right. Valley Bank. I'm going to just focus on Silicon Valley Bank. There are some similar characteristics between Silicon Valley Bank uh, and some of these other bank failures, Signature, uh, First Republic. But uh, Well, they but, haven't but, failed, but, First Republic has. No, they haven't, but they've been rescued by the by the GSIBs, the globally systemic important banks. Yeah. But let me just say what generally happened here. Um, you had, uh, you had a bank that was idiosyncratic in a lot of ways. Yes, sir. This was one of the, uh, this was a, uh, a bank that, uh, grew assets grew rapidly. I mean, very rapidly. It quadrupled in size, uh, from two, uh, 2019 to the, to February of 2023. If you could define a woke bank. I think that would be. Yeah, the, the, they the, would come under that description. The, this bank was more was more interested in its uh, environmental sustainability commitments than its management of its interest rate risk. Right, right. But in any event, um, it was a you know Silicon Valley based bank had a lot of tech concentration. A lot of its cli- clients and customers were were uh, venture capital firms, uh, private equity firms that financed these startup tech companies. And that these startup tech companies were um, a lot of smart people involved in these startups, right. but they were young, typically young entrepreneurs, yes, and they weren't necessarily sophisticated in in the ways of business, other than they're in, they're, they're they're very very smart young people who started tech firms, and what happened was they came into a lot of cash because the venture capital firms that were backing them. Um, recognize that the way tech company and you got to understand how how silicon valley works and how these startup tech companies work when you've got a good idea and you, you've got a couple of patents and you're able to attract uh seed capital from a venture capital firm what happens is they give you a lot of un- upfront capital in fact as i am told a lot of these private equity and venture capital firms actually tell the owners these young entrepreneurs that they do they do not want them to be profitable for seven to ten years. Well, and so that upfront capital is going to get burned through That's as they right. run their business and build their business and pay salaries because you got to right. pay big salaries out That's there. That's right. So that money will come in, but they know it's going to get drawn down. That's right, and they they actually want whatever revenues in the early years that these tech companies earn and bring in. They actually want these firms to plow that revenue right back into the business. The name 
name of the game in tech is market share. And right. the exit uh, where the VC firms and the owners of the tech companies make a lot of money is an IPO or a SPAC Correct. or when they go public or when they when they uh, when they um, when they and then it's only then Absolutely that correct. they want to be profitable. So in these early years, there, there's there's this requirement that these firms have a lot of cash. Yep. Okay. And so what happens is these tech companies get a lot of cash up front from the VC private equity firms, and they those VC firms have a a, a relationship with Silicon Valley Bank. And Silicon Valley Bank comes in on uh, alongside the VC and says, look, I'll give you a line of credit, some debt, along with your equity, w- under very favorable terms. But the condition is you have to park all of that cash with us. And so as this bank started to grow, it grew in massive amounts of deposits. And as your listeners who, um, who, who deposit their funds uh, at banks know the F- the FDIC, the Federal Deposit Insur- Insurance Corporation, insures deposits up to two hundred fifty thousand dollars, and that applies to individuals right. and corporate accounts. So, <clears throat> most of these um, depositors at Silicon Valley Bank well exceeded the two hundred fifty thousand dollars insured limit. You think? <laughs> and and the bank ultimately became um, totally out of balance or idiosyncratic in that ninety percent plus of all of their deposits were uninsured. That right. is very, very unusual. The, if, if, you, if you think of a large, super regional, uh, a super regional uh, uh, bank in, in the United States, and I'm, I'm going to name a few names just to give your listeners some context, but think of Truist, U.S. Bank, PNC, Fifth Third, um, Key Bank, um, Regions Bank, uh, those kind of banks uh, they have corporate accounts, of course. They have high net worth individuals who have uninsured deposits. Right. But the total amount of uninsured deposits in institutions like that is around 30%, maybe maybe 35%. The average uh, deposit is around twenty to $30,000 because they have a big, broad base of depositors that have accounts of 1000 to $10,000 and they're counted at any, any one time. Right. Right? So... Um, this was a very unusual bank, and, and some of these tech firms had upwards of 200, 250, 300, even a billion dollars of uninsured deposits at this bank. And, and the, the, and the other bank, thing, the other feature to it, Andy, is that those deposits, because of their size and the way they were put in, had to be zero interest deposits because there was there wasn't going to be any way that Silicon Valley Bank was able to lay off every bit of those deposits in something paying a higher rate of interest in order to pay those depositors interest. So they're getting zero on it, which became a huge factor as rates began to go up with, because of your friend, Jay Powell, um, you're, you're his buddy, right? I actually met with him this week. Okay. <laughs> the, 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 the point the, is the chairman of the Federal Reserve, who, who system, does yes. not have an economics background, and who, who came out of private equity himself, yeah, private sector, yeah, and but which he's, I like. He's never been him. a banker though either, and investment banker. Well, that's different. It's not a commercial. No, banker. that's true. And so the point I'm trying to make: he was Nick Brady's guy, you know, for a lot of years, and Nick Brady was a very smart guy. Came from Dylan Reed, did the Mexico bailout and all that, but. The, the point I'm making is that the fact that all that money went into that bank, 
because of the size, they could not pay interest on those deposits. That became a problem it's, when people get, began to see they're making 4% in a money market fund. Yeah, it, th- th- this is a good point, Tom, because when we when you look at Silicon Valley Bank and the, and the large percentage of uninsured deposits, in the world of bank regulation, what you look at is stable versus unstable deposits. Exactly. Now, uh, the sim- those were never going to be stable deposits because yeah, they were going to burn down to be the balance. To simplify things, you can look at uh, insured deposits as stable and uninsured deposits as, as less stable. But before Dodd-Frank, after Dodd-Frank, and after the bipartisan regulatory relief law of 2018, in all of those cases, generally speaking, bank regulators have looked at all deposits, whether they're insured or uninsured, as relatively stable. But within the universe of uninsured deposits, there's, there's some d- distinctions. If it's operating money, in other words, it's a corporate account that exceeds the insurance limits. Money comes in and goes but, out. You but, make but payroll. It's, it's, it's operating money, meaning yeah, exactly. meaning that it's it's money that needs to be used for payroll, for routine expenses to operate the business. Right. That's pretty sticky because you need that you need that money to 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 stay in the account until you pay your bills. M- money that's not operating money money that's like from the VC firm that's going to be used next year, two years down the road, that's earning no interest whatsoever, that's flighty money. That's money that is is subject to a run. And there was a ton of money at Silicon Valley Bank that was unstable, uninsured deposits. And only a, only a little bit of their money was insured and operational money. Right. So here's here, uh, when this all went down um, the the week before the the failure, Silicon Valley Bank, uh, and here's the the other feature, and this is the key, the other feature of Silicon Valley Bank that that really underscores how mismanaged this bank was. Their CEO was on the San Francisco Fed board. Okay, the Fed, that is their primary regulator of the bank holding company was the San Francisco Fed. They were a state chartered Fed member bank. The California regulator and the San Francisco Fed were the regulators of this bank. If you look at the website of the San Francisco Fed. So they were not, because they're not a national bank, they were not regulated by the comptroller, the currency, or the FDIC. No, no, they were not, they were regulated by the FDIC, but they were, they were, because they were, they have obviously an FDIC insurance. How do you have a state chartered bank as a member of the Fed? Well, well, they were not an OCC regulated bank. They were not a national bank. They were a California state chartered bank, but a Fed member bank. So what that meant was, the Fed was the primary regulator. They regulated the bank with the California uh, bank regulator. Um, but the Fed was the lead. The San Francisco Fed was the lead because they regulated the holding company. And um, the OCC was not involved because they were not the, the – and by the way, I had breakfast with uh, Acting Director Sue this week. He had a peripheral role insofar as he is a member – the the comptroller of the currency is a member of the FDIC board. And so when all of this uh, happened and when the bank failed and when it went into receivership and there was a a decision about resolution, decisions about resolution, um, acting director Sue of the OCC had some peripheral involvement. And also he's a member of the FSOC, the Financial Stability Oversight Council, which met uh, in emergency meeting over the course of the weekend. So 
in that position, he had a role to play. But in, in general, as the bank was failing, what happened was the management of the bank did not manage its interest rate risk. It had all of this cash, and so it needed to invest that cash into some securities. And it did so in safe securities, U.S. Treasuries and agency securities, mortgage-backed securities. The problem was when they invested all of that cash, they did so in long-dated, long-duration maturity, hold-to-maturity securities. Yeah, well, they were like five- to seven-year securities. Right, that, yeah, and this was 20 years. And this was before they were obviously doing the right thing at the time, looking for yield. Um, but they did so before the Fed started tightening monetary policy and raising the Fed funds rate. So when um, the when uh, the Democrats engaged in overspending and created a 40-year high inflation, when the Federal Reserve continued its quantitative easing for too long, continued to buy bonds and pump uh, liquidity into our economy, increasing the money supply even when we were in full recovery, when they kept interest rates too low for too long, they sparked the largest inflation, the most uh, significant inflation right. trend in 40 years. And so then the Fed had to rapidly tighten monetary policy. Well, And the, in the, a matter they, of, they, uh, just to finish thought, and they obviously had to raise uh, the Fed funds rate 475 basis points in 12, 13 months. Right. The, the banking system in that environment, if you are then invested in, hold maturity, long duration securities, you've got an interest rate risk at that point and an asset liability mismatch. Okay. And so, so that's, that's where, let me, that's let me the just, underlying cause of this crisis. Yeah. Okay. So people call treasuries safe securities. They call agencies safe securities. They are only safe as to payment of principal and interest. Credit risk. They are safe. not, they are not safe as to interest rate risk. Now, here's something I've talked about for years. When interest rates go up, bond prices go down. Right. And it's inversely related to the length of maturity on the bond. A two-year bond will not drop in price at a 200 basis point increase, as will a five-year bond. A five-year bond will not drop in price as much as a 10-year bond. And a 10-year bond won't drop in price as much as a 20- or a 30-year bond. So bond prices are directly uh, inverse. What is the best bond to own if you think rates are going to come down? A 30-year zero-coupon bond if all you're looking for is capital appreciation. And people do this kind of thing. It seems to me that this lesson was lost on the guys managing uh, Silicon Valley Bank. So they were able, and the fact easily, that you talk about they're young and this and that, they've never been through a bond market, bear market. But here's the thing: they could have, like many other banks in the country, hedged their interest rate risk in a rising interest rate environment, and they failed to do it's so. Expensive. It's and, buying insurance. And I, this week, when I quizzed uh, and and asked the questions of uh, Michael Barr, the vice chair of supervision at the Fed, uh, and, and I, I said, did 
did Silicon Valley Bank have unhedged interest rate risk? And he said that at some point in time, they had some hedges, but not at the time of their failure. The, the fact is, they didn't hedge their interest rate you risk. You can't be 100% hedged because it'll destroy your spread. You will spend every bit of money that you make on your interest rate spread on buying insurance on your bond that's, portfolio. You that, can't do it. That, that's true. But uh, but well-managed banks in this country right now in a rising interest rate environment, not all banks went all in long No, duration. you're right about that. And so this bank did the exact most risky thing. They went all long duration securities unhedged in a rapidly rising interest rate environment. The result was right. that when there was a run and when they had to – to access liquidity, to pay the depositors their, their withdrawals. Money wasn't there. This bank experienced a catastrophic run on Thursday, March, I believe it was the 8th, and um, there was uh, there was $42 billion left the right. bank in a matter of two hours. 100 was going to go out the next day is what I heard. That's and- right. And so, so they had to mark to market. Here's yeah, the here's the bottom line: is they, there if if they were able to hold to maturity, they wouldn't have had the had a problem. But in order to pay the depositors, they had to liquidate these uh, securities at a loss. They had unrealized losses. They had to realize right. those losses, and then the run compounded itself. This was initially a liquidity. A problem, but it became a solvency problem very for the quickly. Bank. Banking is what's called a fractional reserve business. So they'll take in a hundred dollars. They have to leave ten percent in reserves. That's your capital. That's your cushion. You loan out the other ninety percent. If you lose on your either your asset or your liability side, it goes against your capital. But here's the thing: this mismanagement of this bank was hiding in plain sight, and the Fed failed. Good place to stop. You're listening to the Tom Dupree Show with special guest Congressman Andy Barr. Stay tuned. We'll be back with more in the second segment. Before I was born, I got a boy child coming. He's gonna be a son of a gun. He's gonna make pretty women jump and shout. Then the world wanna know what this all about. But you know I'm here. Welcome back to the Tom Dupree Show with special guest Congressman Andy Barr and our host Tom Dupree, and we are powered by Dupree Financial Group. So, Congressman, uh, we know that we had a problem. We know that things were going on that shouldn't have gone on. We can say, was it the bank? Was it the supervision? Was it just the market? I mean, you certainly have an opinion over 
where the problem lay. So let us yeah. know what you think here. So obviously the underlying cause was the failures of monetary and fiscal policy that created these conditions that, that, that resulted in a very rapid rise in interest rates. But in our oversight hearing of the bank regulators this week, I asked some basic questions of the top bank regulator in the country, Michael Barr, the vice chairman of supervision at the Fed. And I asked him, uh, true or false, has Silicon, Silicon Valley Bank experienced rapid asset growth in a short period of time? That rapid growth was fueled by an extremely high concentration of deposits from a single sector of the economy, the tech sector. The bank became overdependent on a, an extremely high percentage of uninsured deposits, over 90% of uninsured deposits. The bank failed to hedge risk of holding long-duration securities in a rising interest rate environment. And the bank didn't even have a chief risk officer for the eight months leading up to the failure of the bank. Of course, the vice chair of supervision, the top bank regular in America, had to concede that all of those things were true. And I asked him the following question after we established those basic facts. I said, Mr. Barr, was the San Francisco Fed, the chief bank supervisor of this failed bank, was it unaware of any of those basic facts in the months leading up to its failure on March 9th? And of course, he had to acknowledge that the San Francisco Fed was aware of all of those facts. He's not your cousin, is he? Or, no, we actually talked about that. <laughs> we, we are not related. Um, oh, but one of my friends uh, texted me after the hearing. He said, Barr versus Barr. That was, that was the best thing I've seen since Kramer versus Kramer. <laughs> all right. But anyway, what I said, what I established, what I established, I said, I said, I said to him, I said, so, so Mr. Barr, Nothing in the existing regulatory framework concealed those basic facts from the San Francisco Fed, which had the primary responsibility of supervising this bank. So they screwed up. So the bottom line was, this was not a failure of existing bank regulation. The narrative that the bipartisan regulatory relief law that made modifications to the Dodd-Frank law, the bill that I helped draft in 2018 that the Herald leader uh, says that I'm to blame for this whole thing. The truth is the, the existing regulations under Dodd-Frank as amended by the bill that I helped draft gave the Fed all the tools they needed. And they just didn't use them. They didn't use them. They, 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 so now they, the Democrats want more regulations. This was hiding in plain sight. Yeah, you got it. I see what in, you're saying. Hiding in plain sight. So what, now what is Biden, Elizabeth Warren, uh, Michael Barr, what are they calling for? More regulations. That's right. The last thing we need right now, when the banking system has a lot of deposit migration and there's some some level of financial instability that's still out there, the last thing we need to do is I put more agree. pressure. I could not agree with you more. The, 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 what, I, that's exactly right. What we need is what we did in 2018. We need more of it, not less, which is tailored regulation. Meaning that right. if it's a small, simple banking model, there needs to be the least amount of regulation. If it's a mid-sized bank with larger depositors, more sophisticated business customers, a little bit more regulation. If it's a regional bank, a little bit more regulation. If it is a systemically important global bank, Wall Street Bank, it needs the most regulation. What, what they are calling for is one-size-fits-all regulation that would result, ironically, it would result in the consolidation of the banking sector and pushing all these banks into large, too big to fail banks, Wall Street banks. We're going to end up looking like Europe if I they know, have their you're, way. You're right. And we went to Sweden 
seven or eight years ago, and there's five banks in Sweden, and the biggest bank in Sweden only handles cash in five of its branches. I mean, cash has been done away with in parts of Europe uh, because they just don't use it. So the thing of it is, now, what I want to get into here is that's all well and good, what you're talking about, and what and, and you're talking about what you've done and this kind of thing. But you've been meeting with a lot of bank presidents over the last uh, several weeks and days even. The average person out there is really not 100% interested in what we just talked about. What they're interested in is how safe is my bank? How And a lot of them do not have over 250 grand in their bank account. So let's talk a little bit about the FDIC. It's got something like 120 something billion in assets, which can be used to uh, pay claims until they find a buyer for the assets of the failed bank. I understand First Citizens of North Carolina is actually the one taking over uh, SVB, SVB, which is interesting. That's an old stodgy bank that's been around for a long time. And in North Carolina seems to be where all the banks end up. But the, the point of it that I'm trying to make is to the average, yeah. to your constituents out here, right. which is who's listening to this thing, how safe is my bank? Where should I put my money? And I'm not talking about, you know, the stock market or bonds or whatever, just money, money. Well, I'm obviously not giving financial advice to no, any, no. any of my not. constituents. But you're but on what top I, of it what, really but, well. But what I will say is that whether your bank is a globally systemically important bank, a large Wall Street money center bank, so that like would be Chase, Chase uh, Bank of bank America, America Citibank, City, Wells Fargo, Wells. Goldman Sachs, Morgan Stanley. Well, Goldman's not really a bank, even though they say they are. They've got a bank, and so does Morgan Stanley. Yeah. But you're right; they're mainly they're mainly um, uh, capital markets uh, right. uh, institutions. But he, but here's the bottom line: if you're in one of those large banks. Whether you're in a large regional bank, a Truist, a PNC, a Fifth Third, a uh, U.S. bank, or if you're in a mid-sized bank, let's say a West Bank or a Republic Bank, or if you're in a community bank like Central Bank or Fork Bank or Whitaker Bank or tra- Traditional Bank or People's Exchange, yeah. if you're in any one of those banks or, or, or Bank of the Bluegrass, any of those small community banks, your money is totally safe and protected regardless of which institution you're in as long as it's FDIC insured, up to $250,000. So that's a lot of coverage for Explain most Americans. Explain what you mean by totally safe and protected. Well, because I, I just want to, I want you to tell us the mechanics of how it is totally safe so and there's protected. So th- there's, a, there's a depression era law, and actually before, that, uh, called the, F, the Federal Deposit Insurance Act, created the FDIC, and it is, um, which is a federal deposit insurance corporation, and and they run what's called the DIF, the Deposit Insurance Fund. And banks actually have to pay premiums That's yearly right. into this FDIC right. insurance. It's, fund. it's insurance. So the banks, your insured depository institutions, that take your deposits and then make loans off of those deposits, that ha- they have insurance. They pay assessments. Uh, insurance premiums on those, and it's a, it operates as a, as a large insurance company. So, but say my bank fails, and, and but I'm I've I've got one hundred and twenty thousand dollars in the bank, which makes me under that limit. Yep. If my bank failed, how quickly is it going to be? Am I am I going to have 
instant access to my money or are we going to have to go through a bank holiday? So, so the episode that we just went through illustrates how, how good the system is. So um, Silicon Valley Bank was seized. That's a good question. Silicon, Silicon Valley Bank was seized, you up there. seized by the FDIC and the California regulator uh, mid-morning. Uh, Friday, March the was it the ninth or tenth? I remember because it was uh, it was the the first uh, first day of the SEC tournament for Kentucky. It was before Kentucky lost to Vanderbilt, and I'm getting my my phone is blowing up, uh, and I'm I'm really I want to be You're more trying to watch the game. Well, I want to be uh, more focused on uh, yeah. Kentucky Vanderbilt, but I had to deal with all this stuff. <laughs> So anyway, uh, don't bother me. My team's winning <laughs> no, or losing. losing. But anyway, oh, uh, that's that's uh, hilarious. Uh, but the the, the 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 depositors were able to access their insured deposits on Monday morning. So okay. the bank failed. The bank was seized. So that afternoon, they couldn't get their money. They, they could not get it that afternoon, but they were they were going to be able to access it on Monday morning, two hundred fifty thousand. But what the depositors at Silicon Valley Bank were worried about was that they had millions of dollars more of uninsured deposits right. that they were worried they went and all of their cash was locked up, and they had payroll to meet on that following Wednesday. Two million tech workers in the country had their had their yeah, pay- paychecks on the line uh, and so there's there's some there's there's it's worth a discussion and maybe not now about how the the obviously the regulators failed bank supervision failed before in the months I think up we to this. should do a series someday but, but there is a lot of these things it is it is worth considering and discussing and debating whether over the course of that weekend the regulators did the right thing they invoked what's called the systemic risk exception to extend a hundred percent guarantee of all of those okay. uninsured deposits of those two failed banks, and then they also the Fed and Treasury. Uh, what they did was they invoked what's called the thirteen three emergency lending powers, and they provided a, a liquidity facility against the collateral of these uh, of these uh, uh, long duration securities to provide the banking system with l- liquidity so that there wouldn't be a run and so that uninsured depositors around the country would have confidence that if they did want to pull out their money, that money was good. Did they, they provide that to, to all banks? All banks. So how many people are step because I understand they will loan at par on bonds that are say trading at 80 cents and, on the dollar. And that bank is called the Bank Term um, L- Lending Program that the How Fed much set is up. that being drawn down on? A lot. A lot. What does a lot mean? Um well we we're, we we asked the question we're getting we don't have the official numbers yet but they're required by law to publish it um in, in a few weeks but we are we are hearing and by the way, it's not a bad thing. It's not a bad thing. Wait because, a minute. Because, I'm going to debate you on that one. Well, Because it's beginning of the total undoing of all this Fed tightening. Well, Because I that will that. monetize the system. That's true. If you can borrow, if I got a bond that's at trading par. at 80 cents and I can borrow par, which yep. is 100, yep. that 20 cents is going to be inflationary. It is. That's I, adding deposits I, back I, into. I, you know that's I, true. I agree. That's a good point. You're right. No, it's true. You're right about that. But in terms of, uh, in terms of, providing confidence and calm i hear what you're saying i think i think and and that's why this two percent inflation thing that the pal keeps throwing out there he asked why why two percent inflation because it's the global standard no explanation you know they're gonna have to this guy does not come 
from the right from the right bank background so, for this so, job. So this Andy. week, so this, and you know that's so, true. So this week, when I when I when I met with him and I was exercising oversight as I always I know, do, I know you and were. hold the Fed accountable. I asked I asked the chairman. I said in the FOMC meeting. Right after the bank crisis, there was quite a bit of debate on CNBC and Fox Business and, and Bloomberg about what is the right approach now. Now that we have this bank crisis, is financial stability the priority of the Federal Reserve or is the tightening project to, to get inflation under control still the priority? Um, I believe that the Fed did the right thing in this case, and they stayed the course, and they raised rates another 25 basis points. And the reason why I do is because at that p- moment in time, it was a lot. A lot of what um, a lot of what was needed was confidence, and I believe that if the Fed, after after all the forward guidance of more tightening and a and a and a higher terminal rate that they had been projecting all along, if they had backtracked. I think that would have sent a signal that the Fed was nervous. Right. And I think that was good for them to stay the course. They've got more tightening to do because they've still got an inflation crisis. They provided the emergency liquidity through the 13-3 facility. That was what the system needed. And look, you've seen some deposit migration, but things have settled down and people's deposits are safe. And what I would say is now, going forward as policymakers, what do we need to look at? What is the the right policy response? I want to interject something here real quick. What's the right policy response? I got you. But in response to a question given him at the D.C. Economic Club, Chairman Powell, when asked, was all the money printing during COVID responsible for inflation? He dodged the question and and said, we'd never seen this, but it's the typical Democrat response. Hold on a minute. And basically saying, no, it really wasn't responsible for inflation because we did all this. Yeah, he's wrong. Okay. Then later they said, what are you going to do? We're going to raise interest rates. The first response is Keynesian. It's, it's this idea of fiscal stimulus. You just stimulate. It doesn't matter. The second response is monetarist. He's playing Paul Volcker there, who who basically tracked M1, which we never hear about anymore. Nobody talks about M1 unless you're a wonk. Yeah. You know, I don't even know. They don't even track M2, 3, and the others anymore that I know about. They track you M2. Can, you, yeah. Oh, but you cannot be a Keynesian and a monetarist at the same time. Yep. Powell doesn't know the difference. That's why the Fed's not nervous, because they don't even know what the problem is. Well, I say he's wrong. Let me just say this. And then they appoint these political hacks at at all the banks out there. I mean, you know, people, they're trying to get what's-her-name on there, the the on the board of the fed who's just an environmentalist i mean oh, raskin yeah yeah bloom raskin no the lady uh it, it sounds like a man's name but i can't think of what her name is lael brainerd yes yeah lael lael's now in the uh, treasury that's a that's she's just a kind of a i mean these people are not really economists i mean in my opinion they're they're economists with sort of an environmental esg yeah, Go- governor brainerd is a progressive and she's over over focused on climate related financial risk as opposed to it's not as as opposed to as opposed to we, a conventional you monetary apply policy ESG and, to, 
and conventional this kind bank of stuff. Regulation. It's not going to yeah. work, Andy. Yeah. All so, right, what, I'm done with but, my. my what I would say about Chairman, you got four and a half. Real quick, what I'd say about Chairman Powell is, Chairman Powell uh, this week said the right thing to us, the Republican I Study hear what Committee, you're which was look. Their job is not to comment on fiscal policy. Fiscal pol- the independence of the Fed de- de- requires the Fed to stay neutral and non comment. They don't dare comment on, on fiscal, fiscal policy. policy because they, they don't want to upset it, the it, apple. It, the it, Treasury is but funding they them. Ha- but they have to. Their monetary policy, though, doesn't operate in a vacuum. It happens in the in the with that's the, right. the backdrop of fiscal policy, and the problem, the mistake that the Fed made was. When the Democrats continued to spend money after all the COVID money and put trillions and trillions of dollars of more uh, spending into the system, which was highly inflationary, the Fed said inflation was transitory. That was a mistake. And so did the Treasury Department. But let me let's get back to this, the safety and soundness of the banking system okay. and deposit insurance really quickly because I think that there is obviously got three and a half minutes the, the policy response from the Biden administration from Elizabeth Warren from Vice Chairman uh, uh, Vice Chairman Barr is now to say and, and I'm sure Gruenberg will be with them in this chorus of more regulation that oh that the Trump era bipartisan uh, uh, regulatory reforms from 2018 that's what caused this. That is total nonsense. It is absurdity. It is them trying to deflect blame that they rightly deserve. They caused the inflation. They caused the rapid rise in interest rates. And they failed to do their job and supervise these banks when they mismanaged basic interest rate risk. It is their fault. And now they want to blame other people for their errors. And so what we need to do now is make sure that they don't make matters worse and create a situation where, and they may want this, they may want it to be a too-big-to-fail bank-only system and and make regulatory pressures on community and regional banks so strenuous that they have to consolidate and put everything into too-big-to-fail Wall Street banks. So in a Republican presidency, are you going to be the Treasury Secretary? What we need to do is eliminate moral hazards. Answer the question. (laughs) Well... Well, that's a that's a big job. Let me tell you, the Treasury Secretary is a big job. Well, it sounds it's, like you know the moving it's, parts. It's an important job. It's I know an it important is. Job. I, I think, and, and we need we got to get people. We, we got to get more. We have to have more people, young people, learning the stuff that you are. We got to teach these young people this stuff, Andy. We I need mean, we need market discipline. We need absolutely. to avoid moral hazard. Education. And and here's what we do we need. Got to educate. I think people. what we are going to look at seriously is we, we do have to look at deposit out-migration, um, and we need to make sure that people feel safe in community and mid-sized banks. It's called disintermediation. It's been going on for years. It started when they started money market funds. And, and there's private sector solutions like you're talking about, CDARs and others. Are, there's, also, there's also these things. Are you guys looking at money market funds yeah, also? We're looking at that, but here's another thing that's interesting. There's, there's, there's interesting private sector solutions out there where you'll have a bank holding company and 15 community bank charters underneath the bank holding company and they're able to offer three three to four million dollars in insure, insure deposits because they're putting that, that that those accounts in each bank i also think we need to go back to this old idea of private banking where when a bank made a loan they put their own money at risk they weren't worried about deposit insurance they could get private insurance if you needed it but we don't need to keep socializing 
private sector risk through the FDIC. Well, it's uh, here's the thing. It's not fair for a woke, mismanaged bank like Silicon Valley uh, to to cause twenty billion dollars to the to the diff to the deposit insurance fund, and then and then have Kentucky community banks that are well managed and know how to manage interest rate risk have their have premiums raised, them, have to bail them out. Thanks for being on the show, Andy. Yeah, great You've to be with you. You're, you're always helpful. Great to, to the be with Tom you. Dupree show with special guest Congressman Andy Barr. We appreciate you listening.